redeemed and by grace we are restored. Well, good morning to you. Good to be together with you on this Sunday morning here at North Hills Church. Whether you are with us in person or with us online, we are glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 11. As we uh, started out last week in Daniel chapter 11 and um, not going to quite finish Daniel, Daniel 11 this morning, but fear not, we will put uh, starting in verse 40, combine it with Daniel chapter 12 and wrap up our time in this book uh, next week. Uh, but this morning, uh, we will turn our attention to um, primarily the second half of Daniel chapter 11. Last week, we took a long historical look at the first 20 verses of Daniel 11. And the emphasis of the first half last week, if uh, whether you were or were not with us, uh, was ultimately about kingdom conflict. We found the people of God in the middle of worldly conflict, which is not surprising to any of us because that has been true uh, throughout uh, history and is true today that we find ourselves in the middle of struggles and wars and conflicts uh, in the world around us. Um, somewhat brushed up against that uh, in Daniel chapter 11, the first 20 verses. Uh, but this morning, we are going to find God's people. They are not just in the midst of conflict. They're not just in the midst of, of warring kingdoms around them and find themselves in the middle. Uh, last week, if you remember, they were it was the kingdom of the north versus the kingdom of the south, and they were right there in the middle. But this morning, we will find God's people as the direct target of the enemy. And so, let's uh, begin this morning a little bit differently. Let's pray, and then we'll turn to uh, our passage. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to gather as your people, Lord. Uh, thank you for the, the faithfulness of your word, Lord, and the truthfulness of it. And that we can turn to it, Lord, with believing hearts. And that uh, thank you, Lord, for how you've given us your word, not just to its original audience, but even to us today, Lord, that we might um, listen to it, read it, Lord, hear it, receive it, Lord, and uh, grow from it. And so would you guide our time together this morning? Would you keep me from any error? And would Christ be exalted? In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Uh, well, as we done, have done a couple times, especially in the book of Daniel, instead of reading our whole text, we're going to read it in a few different phases. Um, and so just to kind of make it a little more palatable for us this morning. Uh, but if you will, uh, we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 11 and we're going to start. We'll just start in verse 20 there since it's the beginning of this uh, paragraph. But just a, a recap last week, uh, there was this constant conflict between the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Uh, for the most part, it was uh, the Seleucids versus Ptolemy. And then we see this guy named Antiochus that we talked a little bit about. Antiochus III, a good bit in the first part of Daniel. And this morning, we're going to be introduced to Antiochus IV. And so, uh, if you will, uh, I'll go and give you kind of our main points just to lay out where we're going. So to kind of help us wrap our mind around our text this morning. Because there's a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. But as we said, we're going to find God's people as a direct target of the enemy. And so the first thing we'll see is that the enemy shall arise. The enemy shall arise, but God's people will stand. And then unfortunately, our third point, the enemy will be relentless. So the enemy shall arise, God's people will stand, and the enemy will be relentless. And you'll have to come back next week for the good part of that. And how ultimately, in the end of it all, the Lord will win. 
So uh, let's now turn our attention to Daniel 11, starting in verse 20. It says, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. And we talked about that being uh, one of the solution kings and how he didn't die in battle, but he died likely of being poisoned. But in verse 21, after his short reign uh, comes, it says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So we're going to kind of go slowly through our text this morning. Um, so what we see here is we see this king, King Antiochus. Now, if you remember last week, as we walked slowly through the historical account of uh, the beginning of Daniel chapter 11, we saw and understood that it lines up very succinctly with history. We can look historically. We can follow Daniel chapter 11 uh, all the way through about verse 35. It follows history. It lines up with what we know uh, actually happened during uh, from about five, 540 B.C. to 140 or so B.C. And now we're picking up in around 160 or 170 with Antiochus IV coming on the scene. Antiochus IV being a very historical individual. Uh, there's no doubt that Antiochus IV lived. And so now we're going to talk about Antiochus IV. Uh, Antiochus the Mad, if you will. Uh, one of his many nicknames. And so we're going to see that Antiochus comes on the scene and the enemy shall arise. And it says that he does so deceptively. He is a contemptible person. It says right out of the gate, he's not a good guy. Right out of the gate, he's not one who fears the Lord, who walks the Lord. He is a contemptible person. And he's not even, uh, royal majesty has not been given to him. And he didn't have the right to be a king. But he was, uh, I believe, fourth in line for the kingship. But he he uh, desired the role of king, and so he comes in and takes it in a very deceptive way. It says, He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And so we see that he, he arises, he, he, uh, he comes to power in a very deceptive way, but it's not, it's not by chance, it's not by circumstance. We know that it is ultimately the Lord who places Antiochus in the position that he finds himself in. Uh, as king of the north and so we continue on there armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant so we see this power that he is he, he is uh, garnering right out of the gate he comes in he takes the kingship uh, he, he takes over he becomes king he, says he, he obtains the kingdom and now his army shall shall be army shall be utterly swept away before him so he is coming in with force in verse 23, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall again act what Dece deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And so we, again, continue to see the rise to power that Antiochus IV has. 
And it says in verse 25, And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And so, again, going back to last week, this constant conflict, this constant battle and warring between the north and the south. And so he's going to stir up his, the, his power and his heart against the southern king. And the king of the south shall, shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. And so now this conflict comes again. There is another waging battle. As we said last week with these, uh, these infantrymen, uh, the, the cavalry, and even elephants. This is an epic ancient Near East battle. And so the southern king gathers his great multitude of an army, but it is not enough because it says he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. And again, we see uh, continually here that Antiochus, uh, that he comes to power and he keeps his power by deceitfulness, by, uh, by devising these schemes. In verse 26, even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as far as the, and as far as the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. So we get a picture into their heart as if we didn't know already. But these two kings are just bent on doing evil. They're not looking to the Lord. They shall speak lies at the same table. And you get this picture, right? You get these two kings at the table, and all they're doing is lying to one another. All they're doing is trying to out-deceive one another. But to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And so this is not going to end until the Lord is ready for it to end, because it is the Lord who appoints, even appoints these conflicts and these wars, as He is sovereignly in control of all things. But then in verse 28, and he shall return to his land with great wealth. So talking about Antiochus IV, he leaves the southern kingdom now. He's, he's, uh, he's come in, he's, he's destroyed, or not destroyed, but he's, he's, he's fought a great war against them. He's won, and he's going back up. He returns to his land. He goes back to the north with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work, uh, he shall work his will and return to his own land. And so we see the, the, the growth and development, if you will. We see the, the ascension of Antiochus IV. For the enemy shall arise. And as he arises, he takes over. Uh, he has this great power, this great army. He has this deceitful heart. He's set on destruction. He is, he is in full pride mode. He wants his kingdom to come. He wants his name to be great. We're going to see that in verse 36 as well. So this prideful king, this arrogant king, is, is amassing this great army, amassing this great kingdom, and this great wealth even, but it's not enough for him. Because not only does he go back home as the victor, not only does he go back home with this great wealth, but now in his heart is set against God himself. It is set against the holy covenant, against God and his people. So he returns to his land with great wealth, but he does so. Uh, and he sets his face against the people of God. And it's said, and we know from history, that even during uh, this return home, he kind of makes a detour, and he goes through Jerusalem, and he, he plunders them, and, he, and he, he attacks them. And so this is not the first or the last attack against Jerusalem. But on the way back to the north, he attacks Jerusalem, and he plunders their temple, and he takes much of the wealth from the temple. 
The enemy shall arise. The enemy is arising here and in Antiochus the fourth. So it seems like, especially I know we got just a few verses there from uh, from 21 to 28, but in this short period, or so it seems to us, it seems that Antiochus the fourth just comes out of nowhere. One of the greatest enemies of God, and we could talk a lot about Antiochus IV, and we'll continue talking about some of its exploits, but one of the greatest enemies in recorded history of God's people, Antiochus the Mad, seems to just show up out of nowhere. This person who shouldn't even be king seems to show up out of nowhere, but we know that he did not show up out of nowhere, for God brought about Antiochus's reign. He chose to use this evil man to ultimately continue to bring about the perfect will of God. And it may seem at times that evil runs amok, but it never does. God was not losing for a period during the reign of Antiochus IV. God was always in control. So as we look at the enemy of God and how the enemy arises, he does so in two different ways in our text this morning. The first of which, as we've seen, is we see that Antiochus, we see that his, his rise in power. We see Antiochus rise in power clearly in these first handful of verses. But secondly, we see Antiochus rise against the people of God, against the people of God. So as we continue there in verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So he goes back home, he detours, he goes to Jerusalem, he does, does a lot of uh, damage there, attacks Jerusalem, he goes back to the north, and then after some time, he goes back. He wants to fight again the king of the south. And so he goes back to the southern kingdom, goes back to the area of Egypt. But it says in verse 29, it's not going to be like it was the, first, the last time you came, Antiochus. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So before we get to where he goes back against the Holy Covenant, he goes back to the southern kingdoms. He wants to, to do more damage, wants to, uh, to have more of his influence, more of his culture. He wants to completely destroy them. But something different happens. Another enemy comes on the scene. Now he's not just fighting Egypt. He's not just fighting uh, the, the Ptolemy regime. Now the ships of Kittim have come against him. Now Rome is on the scene. And now Rome has an interest in this battle. Rome is rising to power as well. And so they assist Ptolemy and his kingdom to, uh, to defeat the, the kingdom of Antiochus, or at least to put him at bay. An interesting little historical fact. Uh, we were probably all familiar with the term, um, uh, oh, what, what term are we familiar with? Uh, do, do not cross the line. Or, yeah, don't, is that, how we, is that how we say it? Don't cross the line. So where this comes from, sorry, my, my, they're writing my notes, okay? That's my problem. Don't cross the line. Where this comes from is actually during this battle right here. After this battle, when the ships of Kittim come against Antiochus, the Roman general meets Antiochus IV on the beach, and he draws a circle, the way the story goes, a circle around Antiochus, and he says, before you leave this circle, I must have an answer. Are you going to retreat and withdraw and go back to your homeland? Or are you going to fight uh, against us? And, and it said that in that circle, he made his decision that he would not fight against Rome and not fight against the uh, Egyptians, and he would return home. And so in that circle uh, was, was born this, uh, this, this idea, uh, not crossing the line. 
But so what he does, he retreats. He, he does, he's not going to fight Rome. He's not going to fight Ptolemy anymore. But he retreats. He turns back. But he's enraged. He is a king. He is a general. He is Antiochus the Mad who is lost. Not just lost to uh, Ptolemy, but is lost to Rome. And knows that he can't go back. So he's enraged. And so what does he do in his rage? It says he takes action against the Holy Covenant. There in verse 30, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate and he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So as he is, as this enemy has arisen and he has gained power and even as he loses these worldly battles, now his attention it turns towards the people of God. So not only do we see Antiochus rise in power, but we see him arise against God's people. And the evil done against God's people began with a heart that was set against them. You see that in verse 28, where his heart shall be against the Holy Covenant. And then now in verse 30, um, he is going to, uh, he's going to take action against. Not only is his heart set against in verse 28, but in verse 30, he takes action against those in the Holy Covenant. He seeks to destroy the people of God. He seeks to take on God himself. This is what Antiochus is about. His heart is full of evil. But it starts with a heart that is set against the people of God. And this answers for us even today the question about the enemies of God. Why, why does our culture hate the things of God? Because they are at war with God. The enemy is at war with God and the things of God. Why do people become so angry against believers? And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us logically. Why would someone set themselves against uh, someone who loves the Lord and is maybe, uh, as Scripture says, minding their own business and living a quiet life, but yet the culture or people or, or whoever comes against believers because their heart is set against the Lord because the only thing that is in the heart of man outside of the Spirit of God is wickedness and deceit. Maybe it answers the question, why does my unbelieving loved one make my life so difficult? It's because apart from the Spirit of God, our hearts are set against those who are in the Holy Covenant. Our hearts are set against God Himself and His people. So we see Antiochus rise of power, and we see Antiochus arise against the people of God. It should be no surprise to us today whenever we see the enemies of God arise in power and position and arise against the people of God. This has been happening since Genesis chapter 3 and it will continue to happen until the Lord himself returns to destroy uh, sin. So not only do we see the, that the enemy will arise, secondly, we see that God's people will stand. We see that God's people will stand. So it says there in verse 32, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I love that verse. Uh, 32b, if you will. 30, the second half of 32. But the people of God, the, but, the, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So yes, the enemy shall arise, but God's people will stand. 
People who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In the midst of such extreme persecution, the temple being desecrated, burnt offerings being removed, worship has been outlawed, the altar has been desolated, the treasury has been robbed, God's people more than ever needed to press into the Lord. According to Jewish historians Antiochus IV, he did several things. He outlawed the reading of Scripture. He outlawed God's people to read the Scriptures ahead. He outlawed circumcision of the infants as the law commanded. He outlawed the Jewish festivals and all their festival days and all their festival activities. He outlawed the sacrifices that were required for the people of God to worship God. And by outlawed, all of these were under penalty of death. So if you wanted to worship God, you did so knowing that you would likely die if you were found out by Antiochus and his kingdom. And so they were under immense persecution, immense stress. That every moment, every day, they constantly had to decide, do I follow the Lord, do I lean into the Lord, or do I protect my life? And to make it even worse, as it says there at the end of 31, this abomination that makes desolate. The abomination that makes desolate was, it was likely one of two things. It was either a statue of Zeus that was installed in the temple itself. And you can just imagine, I mean, we can't fully imagine and, and feel the weight of that. But here is the temple of God, the people of God gathered to worship God and bring their sacrifices. And in there, Antiochus IV brings a, a statue of Zeus and installs it. So it was either the statue of Zeus being installed, or even the practice of unclean animals being sacrificed on the altar that is in the temple. Or maybe, or maybe even likely, both of those were the case. But the, the temple was desecrated. The people of God, this place they gathered to worship God, the sacred place for them, was taken from them by this evil king Antiochus IV. But it says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This was a hopeless and helpless time for the people of God. A hopeless and helpless time for the people of God. So what did they do? There were kind of two groups, if you will. And we see this in verse 31 and verse 32. There were those there were those in Israel who also profaned the temple and who went towards Antiochus. There were those that he seduced with flattery. You know, oftentimes, if not always, as we think about persecution, we always assume, right, that the people are always going to do, are always going to follow the Lord and trust the Lord. But many do not. Persecution, not everyone, um, not everyone walks through persecution and faith and trust. Some forsook the covenant of God and leaned into Antiochus and his ways. And then secondly, you had true Israel. You had true Israel, the remnant, if you will, that we talk about often, who held to the covenant, who honored the covenant and leaned in to God and trusted God and walked with God. Those who knew their God followed their God. So what does it mean to lean into the Lord? What does it mean to, to lean in Him, to press into God during this time of, of overwhelming persecution? 
they would lean into the Lord. And remember, this, for us, this is, this is historical, right? For us, this happened. But for the, the original audience, like who are coming out of exile, right? Babylon's behind them, that life is behind them, that 70 years is gone, and they're rebuilding the temple. And now this vision that Daniel's having, it's going to get much worse. To realize much worse is coming, much worse persecution than what you experienced in Babylon is a, is a fact in the future of God's people. And so how do you lean into the Lord with that? When you feel anxious, hopeless, helpless, overwhelmed, defeated, these feelings come upon you. You look to your only source of comfort, hope, peace, security, and victory. And that is Christ. And so how do we lean into Christ? We are people who know Him. We are people who look to Him. We're people who trust Him. And He's given us ways to do that. He's given us ways to, to look to Him, to trust Him, to draw close to Him. He's given us prayer. He's given us the ability to go to Him at any time during our day, any time during our life, no matter what is going on, even in the midst of it. And we can draw close to the Lord through prayer. He's given us His Word that allows us to draw close to Him, to lean into Him through His Word. And He's given us His people. And the original audience and those that would be uh, alive during this time of great persecution have the same things that we have today. They had prayer and His Word and His people. And this is what God would use to strengthen His people during such immense persecution. And so this is those who knew their God. This is how they would stand firm. And this is how they would take action. And so look at the action they took in verse 33 there. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and by plunder. This heart-wrenching verse, as you really think through what's happening here, it says that these people of God who are drawing close to Him, who are pressing into Him, who know Him, who are standing firm, who desire to take action by, by following the Lord, they're going to disciple others. They're going to train others. They're going to speak wisdom in these other people's lives as their friends and family are maybe scared of Antiochus or what's going on or scared of the future. That these are, 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 are helping them to walk and to press into the Lord. But what's happening it's not just the fear of, of what could happen. In the midst of this, it says they are struggling with the sword. Some are dying by the sword. Some are dying by flame. Some are going back into captivity and are being plundered. So they're continuing to find themselves in this hopeless, helpless situation. But the people of God are pointing the other people of God to God Himself to look to Him and to remember the Lord to remember His saving arm, to remember the Messiah who is coming. That you may die in this life, but Christ is coming for us eternally. As Jesus said, what's the worst that man can do? It's kill you. And that's the worst that man can do. But God brings eternal life and life to the fullest so we go to the Lord through prayer, through His Word, through His people. This is how we know, stand, and act in faith. And I think the order is very important. 
People who know their God, who shall stand firm and take action, they don't take action first. They don't stand on their own, uh, even on their own experience. It says, but they know their God. And by pressing into God, by knowing Him, by being known by Him, it causes them to stand firm. When they know their God, they stand firm in Him, then it leads to acting and walking in faith. And then we see this picture of discipleship in the midst of persecution. And then we see this last bit, this refiner's fire. Because some are going to be taken by sword, flame, captivity, and plunder. Then verse 34, when they stumble, not if they stumble, but when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble. So that, so that, for this is the reason, when you set language in Scripture, so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So we see the people of God, those who are wise, those who are really walking with Him, those of the remnant, they will stumble. They will misstep. And why? So they may be refined so they may be sanctified, so they may become even more like the Messiah, so they may look to the Lord even more and trust Him, realizing they can't stand on their own. If we try to stand on our own during persecution, during difficult days, we will always fall. And at times the Lord allows us to fall and allows us to stumble so that we may be reminded of how much we need Him and His saving arm. So God's people can only endure persecution, can only endure such difficult days, not through their own strength, not through their own gathering, not through their experience, not through anything else except the saving arm of God, by knowing their God, by standing firm in their God, and by taking action. So we see as the enemy arises, God's people will stand And then finally, we see the enemy will be relentless. The enemy will be relentless. Let's just start with the first part of verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. The king shall do as he wills. This is a nod not just to Antiochus IV. We see this in Antiochus III. Uh, We see it said of him in, uh, in the earlier part of Daniel chapter 11. We see it of Alexander the Great who does as he wills. And we see it with so many powerful, uh, sinful men throughout Scripture. And even today, that they do as they will. And so, as we continue talking about the king here, as we're going to continue talking about Antiochus, I want to stop for a moment. Because what we have here is a major fork in the theological road, if you will, in verse 36. Some see this king, the king in verse 36 is as, and the king shall do as he wills. Some see this king not as Antiochus, but another king, a different king, a king who has yet to even come on the scene, not just for Daniel's readers and Daniel's these who are going through, living through Antiochus, but even for us today, many see this king in verse 36 as, a, as an enemy of God, even in our future, namely the Antichrist. And now we get excited, right? You want to draw a crowd, he starts talking about the end times. 
bring some charts. We almost probably put a chart up here, right? But we need a few more projector screens because they get kind of long. You can garner some excitement talking about the end times. And some understand this in verse 36 to make this shift, to go from talking and speaking about Antiochus IV and the times in which he is ruling to now a time in the, the very far future with what the book of John, First and Second John, referred to as the Antichrist. But others understand verse 36 to continue to describe Antiochus IV. So before we deal with this, let me just say a couple of things. There are godly, studied, biblical scholars and preachers alike who understand this text differently than I do. There are many godly, studied scholars and preachers who understand verse 36 and the rest of Daniel chapter 11 in a different way than I have come to understand it. Secondly, this is a tier three issue. Now, what that means, and not to go through the whole theological triage, which I love having that discussion. So if you want to have lunch today and talk about the theological triage, let's go. We'll have coffee this week. We can talk about it. But it's the differences of our, of our theological discussions. And tier one being the things that separate us in salvation. If we disagree on this, we're not brothers and sisters in Christ. Tier two uh, being the things that separate us in worship. If we disagree on tier two issues, we can be brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're not going to go to church together on Sunday because they're, they're that different. But tier three issues is the, the broader base of the triage. And it's the things that we can disagree on. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We can go to worship together on Sunday. We can love each other and have fellowship with each other, but we just like to, well, not like to, we see things differently through Scripture. And that's the important part. Not, we don't see things differently because of our feelings, because of what others have told us, but we go to Scripture and we are convinced differently of what God's Word says. And so this is a tier three issue. It matters, but it does not divide. It matters, but it does not divide. And so my conclusion after praying and studying this passage that the subject of Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 through, 30, through, through 45 is indeed Antiochus IV. Both from a plain reading of the text and what that means is when you take your Bible and you read it and you're, you don't have you know, commentaries in the background, you don't have language studies that you're thinking through, you just read the Bible for what it is, a plain reading that combined with the language, as you look at the language, because sometimes a plain reading is made, is made more clear by understanding the language and what's being said, and maybe a word doesn't mean what you think it means. But a plain reading of the text and an understanding of the language, neither one of those give us a reason to think there's a shift in the subject. And I would go even one step further from plain language. As you look at Daniel chapter 11, you'll see many times, I think it's about four or five times in this chapter, that the word shall arise is used. You know, Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, three more kings shall arise. And then Alexander, verse 3, shall arise. Verse 7, another king shall arise. And then in verse 20, the solution king shall arise. And then Antiochus IV in verse 21 shall arise. Every time we see in Daniel chapter 11 a new, a new king or a new person of authority, we'll see it again in Daniel chapter 12. Whenever this, this new person of authority comes onto the scene, almost every time the words shall arise are used. And in verse 36, a new king doesn't arise. And so it continues talking about this king that they have been talking about, which is Antiochus IV. 
it's difficult not to bring what we have been taught for decades into our attempt to understand a text like this. I struggle with it myself. But I encourage you to prayerfully approach this passage objectively. It matters, but it does not divide. But regardless, here is what we can agree on. If you see Daniel 11, 36-45 differently, what we can agree on, whether Antiochus IV, whether it's about Antiochus IV, or the Antichrist. And we won't spend the time on this morning. Antiochus IV could be a, a typology. He could be pointing to, because here's the reality. The, what we're going to see in these next few verses from 36 to 39 is indeed a spirit of the Antichrist. It's what we see in men who are set against God, who are set against God's people, and who desire to do great harm to God's people. But regardless on how you see this particular individual, we can agree on a few different things. One is that God is in absolute control. And that's one of the themes of Daniel's, one of the themes of Scripture, of God's absolute sovereignty of his absolute control over all things, over all events, over all men, over all kingdoms, over all kings, over the past, the present, and the future. God is in absolute control. And absolute control, sovereignty means everything. So he is in control of Antiochus IV. He is in control of the Antichrist. He is in control of every spirit of the Antichrist who has come before the final Antichrist. God is in absolute control. Number two, this may bother you, we don't have to know. We don't have to know. It matters, but it's, it's, uh, it's not divisive. If we can't know for certainty, we're going to trust the Lord. So God's in absolute control. We don't have to know. But more importantly, our focus should be to have our hearts and our minds set on Christ in any circumstance. In any circumstance. Sometimes I wonder what the, the, um, the angst is to know more about the end times. Like if you know more about it, will you, will you live differently? Will you plan differently? Will you shop differently? Will you think differently? I don't know. But whatever happens, and we talk about this often, we need to be a people who have a prepared mind, who are ready for whatever may come. Because persecution will likely get worse and worse in our context, in our lifetime. So I'll be ready for that. We need to be a people who focus our hearts and our minds who are set on Christ in any circumstance to know God, to stand firm, and to take action. So I think and I hope we can all agree on that. Now briefly, let's read through this, these first handful of verses from 36 to 39. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself. Now we're, going, we're seeing a shift here. In Antiochus, he goes from this, this, uh, this nobody, so to speak, who's, who's rising in power, to now he's had this power, he's come to Jerusalem, he lost in the south, but he's come to Jerusalem, he's, he's done great damage, and now he's just even more full of pride. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And we even see that in history, where he puts his face on a coin and, and demonstrates that, that he is a god. And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. I want to stop there just for a moment. You see this in this one verse. 
you see this beautiful reminder again of God's sovereignty. The king is doing what he wants to do. Whatever he wants to do. Sin is reigning in his heart. He is living this out. He is fleshing out all the sinful desires of his prideful heart. But in only in the sphere of God's decree. For what is decreed shall be done. So he does nothing outside of the decree and the will and the plan of God. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay any attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. So you see this wicked, evil king who has deified himself who says, I am so mighty, I'm not just a mighty king, I am a God, bow down and worship me. He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him shall be, shall load with him, those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price or a payment. So we see this, this embellishment of Antiochus, that he is, he is now in full-blown God mode, or so he thinks. He thinks he is he's in a whole different place. But yet we know that he is not God. We know that he is nothing of the sort. We know that he is an evil, sinful, frail man that God is using in his arena, in his theater that we call history. He is using Antiochus to bring about what he wants. But man's free will here is committing the sins of his desire, yet still in the scope of God's sovereign hand and plan. And again, despite the rise of our relentless enemy, God is in absolute control. Not just a control of the results. In the end, He sovereignly provides, presides over every moment and every day. And I know you may say, you know what, John, you say that all the time. But don't we need to hear it week in and week out? Don't we need to be reminded of that on a daily basis? You may call you every day and say, God's in control. It's okay. Back in the day, we had the phone tree, didn't we? We could send out messages to everybody one time. Maybe we need a message every day. Say, God's in control. That no matter what depression or anxiety, whatever overwhelming feeling comes over us, no matter what the news is, no matter how uh, dark the day seems, to know that God is in absolute control. That what He has decreed shall be done. And why is that so encouraging? Because God loves us. Because we are His and He is ours. It's not a good thought if you're not of the Lord. It's not a good thought if you're an enemy of God. It's not good to be Antiochus and to know that God is sovereign. Because you will end up dead. Not just in this world, but you will end up in damnation for eternity. But if you are His, if you are God's, His sovereignty, His decree works all things together for His glory 
and our good. What he has decreed shall be done. And he has decreed that evil shall arise. He has decreed that his people will know him, will stand, and will act. He has decreed that evil shall continue and even get worse. And he has decreed an end to sin and to suffering. And to that end, we will look next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your your grace and for your mercy. I thank you for your truth. And Lord, this morning I pray that even as we look in the past at what was the future for this original audience, that we are reminded of your sovereign hand over all things. That if we look to our future, we can do so with great hope and expectation and anticipation. That even if it gets dark and dismal, that Lord, you are sovereignly in control. And that we can know you, that we can stand firm in you, and that we can act through your Holy Spirit. As we continue this morning, Lord, as we sing, as we take communion, as we have an opportunity to give, and as we leave this place, Lord, may we do so as those who know you and who are known by you. May we do so, Lord, as those who have complete confidence in your decree. Help us to respond in faith in these next few moments. In Christ's name, amen.